Well, hello. This is the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hello, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so much for giving the show a listen today, a download of you, wherever it is that you're hearing this or seeing this. Just know you, my friend, are greatly appreciated. Today's show is a very, very powerful one, and I want to underscore powerful. Matter of fact, let's put two underlines underneath powerful in all caps, three exclamation points, circle it, do what you got to do. That's how monster this show is. When you see somebody who is 250 pounds or 300 pounds, or in my case, I was 420 pounds, you need to realize that they're not that size by choice. Nobody wants to be that overweight. But food, food is as powerful of a drug as there is out there. And you're going to hear about that today from Dr. Barnard. The brain reacts the same way to cheeseburgers as it does to cocaine. The same way it can react. It's unbelievable to me. For me, it was burritos and it was nachos. And I didn't even realize how much of a food addict I was becoming, how hooked I was becoming on those types of foods at such a young age. I spent countless nights at the drive-thru and then at my grandma's house. It was all about the unhealthy cooking. It was about the fried bologna. It was about the blue box mac and cheese. It was about potato chips. Anything that was on my plate, guarantee you it was not healthy. None of it. And this, this was in elementary school. And so it was no surprise that I just kept getting heavier and heavier as the years passed. And by the time I graduated from high school, I was already almost 300 pounds. But then the years, as they always do, they keep rolling by and my waist kept getting larger and larger. And my portions would get bigger and bigger and I completely completely lost control. And of course, there was intermittent success in there, at least what I defined as success from time to time. I'd lose as much as 80 pounds only to put it all back on. And then some, I'd lose the 80. I'd have one little slip up. And before you know it, a pound crept back on and then another one and then another one. And before you know it, boom, I was 100 pounds heavier. How does that happen? How did I lose 80 and then gain back 100 and then some and kept going and going and going? I was like the Energizer Bunny with my waistline. I could not quit food. I'm not joking when I say that Taco Bell would call to me in the night. I mean, it would call to me. Dr. Barnard and I, we touch on this during our interview, but I wanted to elaborate on it a little bit more before we really got going because I think it's important that we all have this understanding of just how powerful food addiction can be, just how big that struggle can be. I could not go a day without my fix. And each time I would go there, I would drop $20, $20 on food. I would load up, I would get this huge five-pound bag of burritos, of nachos, of quesadilla, tacos, all of it adding up to just tens of thousands of calories over the course of the week. And God only knows how many grams of fat 
I shudder to even think. And sometimes, sometimes, I would do this twice a day. That's how powerful this addiction was. It was so bad. My addiction was so bad that at one point, I will never forget this. I go to place my order, as I always do, and I go through it, and I finish ordering it. And instead of getting my total, please drive through, I hear, you eat too much. The woman taking my order said on the speaker in the drive through menu, you eat too much. Now, until this point, I thought that, you know, this woman was my friend. You know, I saw them so often that I was like, where is this coming from? Why is my friend turning on me? Like, what What in the world? I was embarrassed. I was hurt. I was ashamed. But, of course, I tried to play this off like, no way this food is all for me. Ha, ha, ha. Are you kidding? There's no way that one person could possibly eat this much. So I played it off. I tried to say that it wasn't just for me. It was for everybody at my office, too. I was just the guy who went out to get the food for everyone. It was a complete and total crock. She knew it. I knew it. But the funny thing is, I was saying that as much to lie to her as I was to myself, hoping that I would somehow believe this lie that I was telling. Both of us saw right through it. Both of us. And that that hurt. I mean, that stung. But it didn't stop me. I still had to get my fix. I had to get my fix because if I didn't, I would go through a literal detox. And I want you to think about if you've ever seen these documentaries or even reality shows on TV where they chronicle somebody's uh, a a traditional addict. That's what I'll call them here. Somebody's struggling with substance abuse problems, going through their detox at a rehab facility. For me, watching that, I saw a lot of what I went through as well. We're talking about nights where... I would start to ache. You know, I'd start to feel like I got the flu, like my skin would ache a little bit. And then I would start to get these cold sweats and I would feel nauseous and I would just lay on the bed praying for this to pass. I knew what was going on. I wasn't getting my fix. My body was telling me, get this, get this, get this. And I was fighting it. And I was just laying on the bed trying to get this feeling to pass, but it wouldn't. It would not pass. It would not go away. And then soon my mood would begin to change. I would become angry, angry, and my whole body would just fill with this this rage, this uncontrollable rage because I wasn't getting the tranquilizer that my brain was telling me that it needed to stabilize. I wasn't getting it. And I was just a mess. And I would be snapping at people. I was the least pleasant person in the entire world to be around. And then I would become violent. Violent to the point where I wanted to destroy any and everything in my way. Violent to the point where one night I hauled back with my clenched fist and I punched it. Boom! straight through a wall just because I wasn't getting the food I was used to. Food. I couldn't take it anymore. I put my fist through a wall because 
of food. And so I would relent. I would relent from this. I felt like I, I, I didn't have a choice. So I would sneak out the back door of the basement. I would get into my car in the middle of the night, go to a 24-hour drive through Believe you me, I knew where that was long before there was GPS on the phone. And I would get my fix so that I could settle down. More often than not, this would happen when I was on one of my diets. And I put that in quotation marks, obviously. But I didn't want anybody to know that I was slipping up. I wanted them to be proud of me. Like, man, you know, Chuck's trying so hard to lose all that weight. This is so great. I didn't want to let them down. So after I would go and I would get this food, I would binge on it, that $20, that heart attack in a sack. I would hide all the evidence before the sun rose. So nobody would knew that I did what I did just to calm down. They knew that I was a much more pleasant person in the morning, the following morning. That's for daggone sure. But they didn't know why. And so I share that with you because I want you to know that food addiction is real. And for those who are not, who are not battling obesity, who aren't overweight, I hope that you can gain a little bit and of compassion and understanding for somebody who is 300, 400, even 500 pounds, because they have a problem the same way that an alcoholic has a problem, the same way that a drug addict has a problem. Nobody chooses to be that size. And the real messed up part of all this is, is even though three quarters of the country is overweight, at this point, when you're that overweight, when you're clinically super morbidly obese, you are a social pariah. You are an outcast. But the good news, you can beat this addiction. That's what the show's about today. You can absolutely beat this addiction and you do not have to live that way. You do not have to be a slave to the food. You don't have to be cast to the side. You don't have to lock yourself in the house. You don't have to alienate yourself from the world. You can beat this thing. It is possible for you to be the person who you've always dreamt of being. It's inside of you already. It's possible for you to grow old and smile real big with all of those wrinkles in your face and they just get pulled back because you're smiling so big. And why are you so happy? It's because you are healthy and you've lived to a ripe old age and you never thought that that was possible because you are such a slave to the food. But you don't have to be that way. You can be an inspiration. Be that inspiration. Inspire somebody else. After you conquer it, show somebody else they can conquer it too. It doesn't have to be this way. And I hope that as Dr. Barnard explains some more of the science behind food addiction, why the brain reacts the way that it does, I hope that you gain that compassion and that understanding. It's a fascinating I mean, truly fascinating discussion. And there is so very, very much to digest there. 
Also on the show today is Sarah Frazier. Now, if you're not familiar with Sarah, she is a wildly popular D.C. area media personality, and she is a fellow weight loss success. She's here to talk about her own battle with the bulge and how she was able to overcome it through mindful eating. Sarah's another one whose addiction to food began when she was very, very young, when she was just a child. And then being in the spotlight, she also talks about some of the criticism she received from viewers and how those words, how that criticism profoundly affected her. Coming up in just a second is my conversation with Dr. Barnard. You know, cheese is actually one of the most addictive foods out there. We've, we've done a show on this called The Cheese Trap broke down why cheese is so addictive. We're going to touch on that a little bit in this interview coming up too. But cheese is super, super addictive. But before we get a chance to talk about that today, it's a reminder that so many people say that, well, I could go vegan, but I just can't give up the cheese. They think that they can't live without it. But listen up. There is a dairy-free cheese available. Boom. Problem solved. Dairy-free. And that is why this segment is sponsored by Treeline Tree Nut Cheese, one of the leading artisanal vegan cheeses. It's available at Whole Foods, Kroger, health food stores, co-ops, and other grocery stores nationwide. Easy to find. Treeline cheeses are vegan. They're kosher. They're dairy-free, probiotic, and very important here, 100% free of animal suffering. It's available in aged, artisanal, and soft French-style varieties and flavors such as scallion, herb garlic, cracked pepper, and chipotle serrano, and green peppercorn. How about that? That's gourmet right there. Plus, the brand-new premium New York-style cream cheese that will start appearing in store shelves early this year. You can find out more about Treeline's mission and find recipes. Just head on over to treelinecheese.com. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. This is the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll, and I am here with Dr. Neil Barnard. Today's topic is a very important one, one that more of us struggle with than I think we even recognize, and that topic is food addiction. Welcome to the show, Dr. Barnard. Thank you, Chuck. I was doing some research before we get going on this, um, and it, it kind of shocked me that Food addiction is this prevalent. According to an NIH study that was done not too terribly long ago, uh, as many as 7% of women and 3% of men uh, are classified as food addicts. Um, I personally, having been one, could say, well, those numbers could be a little bit higher. But overall, I mean, that's, that's a pretty substantial portion of the population. Yeah, and it really depends on how a person defines it. It can be much, much higher. For example... Um, let's say we're not necessarily talking about a problematic addiction, something that gets you into trouble, but something that's clearly addicting, like a morning cup of coffee. Right. How many Americans would, would say, you know, I have one every morning. Are you addicted? Yeah, of course, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, because it doesn't have any moral overtones, people <laughs> will, will readily agree right. that that's them. And they know it's physical. They know it's caffeine because they drag out of bed and they haven't had their coffee and they feel withdrawal until they've had, had their dose. The, the point I'm making is I think these numbers are low. Hmm. Um, I think that their addiction to foods is far more common than that, if not even universal, meaning that at some point in their lives, people get into 
a jag, a rut, a habit um, that has a physiological basis that has them eating that food that doesn't love them back, and they're and they're having it every single day. I mean, I'll, I mean, uh, we've talked about that on this show quite a bit. Is you know uh, how woefully addicted I was to food, and it was the same food every single day. It was Boston Market for lunch. It was taquitos at 7-Eleven on the way home with two 32-ounce Gatorades. Thank you very much. Uh, and then it was $20 worth of Taco Bell for dinner. And if I did not get those foods, I turned into cranky pants. You did not want to be around me. And the longer I went without those foods, the stronger the withdrawal symptoms became. I got to a point when I would be two or three days out, I would start to sweat. I would start to feel nauseous. I would get really, really angry to the point where, as I've said on the show, I've put my fist through a wall because I wasn't getting my fix. And that's an addiction to food, food, not a drug, food. But you're pointing out something really, really important. It was a certain food that you had identified every day. And at the same time a day. Yeah. Um, in other words, addictions have cycles. So you might love whatever it is. You know, a person you know, went out on a bender and they got totally drunk. But that was completely out of character for them. They hadn't done it before. Um, and they didn't drink for weeks afterwards. That's not addiction. That might have been a bad choice, but it might not have helped them, but it's not an addiction. Addictions are on a daily basis or, or even on a faster cycle than that, uh, a tobacco addiction. Right. Nicotine is obviously addictive. Um, the cycle is faster, you know, so you've got to have a cigarette every certain kind of increment. Um, but with food, it's very often a 24-hour kind of cycle. It's a certain food, and it's a certain kind of day. So you weren't at Taco Bell at 9 a.m. It was, it was a night, I'm, I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, it was a nighttime thing. Absolutely. Or for some people, the refrigerator is a magnetic 830 um, and you know what you want, or you're going to the very same store for the very same three chocolate bars, you know, every night or whatever it is, yep. specific food, specific time. And that is a, a sign. And, and because you see this so often, that's why I think that I think that food addiction is much more common than is recognized. You know, researchers at Yale, it's funny you talk about that. Researchers at Yale came out with a food addiction scale. And one of the questions on there was um, asking people to rate whether or not they did this. And that is, you have a refrigerator full of every food under the sun, but it doesn't contain the food that you want to eat at that certain day. Do you go out? Do you go out of your way? Ignore everything that's in the refrigerator and go to get your fix at that point. For me, it was absolutely yes. They put a lot of weight on that particular question. Yes, it's true. And, and there are others as well that relate to this. Um, do you feel that you've lost control? Um, are, are there certain foods where you eat enough and you're happy, fine, that's it? That's not an addictive food. It's one that brings you beyond um, normal satiety, and you're eating it for reasons other than being full, just as you described with your own experience. Um, Do you start hiding things or lying about it Mm -hmm. uh, so you don't want people to detect what you've done? I mean, these are... are um, not unique to food, but they're but they're common for addictions. And and my message is: let's demoralize it. Let's look at it just biologically. I believe that the human the human brain is susceptible to addictions, mm-hmm. um, and that it's uh, effectively ubiquitous. Right. And there are companies working really hard to make sure they are triggering exactly that addiction. So if it happens to you, it's not that you had a bad childhood. It's not that you necessarily have a genetic predisposition, although you may, and we, and we, should, we should talk about that. Um, but you may not. Uh, and people can fall into this really no matter 
who they are or where they're from or how cast iron their will is. Before we talk about which foods are the most addictive, you know, what food properties kind of light up the brain, let's talk about how that brain reacts in food addicts compared to those of a drug addict. You know, these studies that they've done are, are quite staggering, and they say, well, if correct me if I'm wrong, but the brain reacts very similarly with food addicts as it does with the drug addict. We have some fundamental neural circuitry that's designed to reward us. And what nature had in mind was not to reward you for a Snickers bar or a Taco Bell meal. Uh, what nature was thinking of is we need a reward circuitry for, let's say, uh, you find just a good, healthy uh, food source so that you will remember where you found it. You'll, you'll, you'll uh, key in on all the cognitive things about where it is and, and remember to have it again because biologically that will support you. Right. Um, the same circuitry, by the way, is triggered when you find a receptive mate. So um, th- these things sustain the individual and sustain the species. Um, it's a little humiliating to think we have circuitry like that in our brains, but we didn't design the system. We're stuck with it. Um, now, that circuitry gets triggered. Okay. It gets triggered by all kinds of things that, that, that hijack it. Uh, no, when, when human beings evolved to have this circuitry, and by the way, animals have it too, um, nobody had figured out how to ferment grains and to make no beer. liquor, yeah. be, liquor, <laughs> beer, wine. Um, but once we had that technology, you suddenly discover you can feel not just good, but you can feel better than anyone has ever felt um, because you're triggering that pleasure circuitry. And, and what the circuitry does is one cell sends dopamine, these little molecules of dopamine, to the adjacent cell. That sets up, it propagates a pleasure response that doesn't just feel good. It, it does that, but it also kind of sets a timer saying, put this on repeat. Hmm. Do this again. Mm-hmm. Do this again tomorrow. Same time, okay? Right. Um, and dopamine does that. Um, so alcohol can do it, obviously. And then when people figured out how to make cocaine, you know, it's, it's a leaf. But somebody figured out how to, how to extract cocaine. Uh, tobacco with nicotine. Uh, opiates, heroin, and right. others. And uh, no surprise, it's also things that we ingest that we, that we call food, but that nature thought, wait a minute, you know, that's not necessarily food. You take sugar cane. Mm-hmm. And you throw away all the fiber and all the pulp, and you extract just the sucrose from it, uh, or sugar beets. Uh, people can get hooked on sugar as well. I don't think that that's an uncommon addiction. Uh, you know, you go through any checkout line in any supermarket in this country, uh, and you will see a bevy of candy just staring right at you, saying, "Grab me." And and that's why I want to get away from this idea of addiction as being a terrible thing. Um, I, I don't mean to say it's helpful, but I mean to say it's not a moral failing. Um, and if a person doesn't want to use the word addiction, just call it a jag, or I got into a rut. But the idea that person A is a sugar addict and person B isn't, wait a minute, like everybody can be or has been or will be a sugar addict at some right. point in their life right, right. because it's it's ubiquitous. It's, it's wafted into our culture and it gets mixed with things to make it more addicting. Like sugar alone, addictive, right. but you mix it with a little cocoa butter, um, the fat sugar balance about 50-50 uh, will cause the, the dopamine neurons to say, okay, now we're on to something. And, and there are I believe, we'll just call them food scientists think tanks that work for these large restaurant corporations whose sole function is to figure out 
how to make people crave these items a little bit more, how to get more of what it is that will trigger that response. Success for them is defined by what goes over the cash register. So if something is <laughs> scanned over the cash register and they are making money, that is success. How do you do that? You can, you can modify the fat sugar mixture of a candy bar. You can modify the s- salt content of a bag of potato chips. Mm-hmm. And you can modify these things to make them more or less addicting. And that's what the companies are doing. Um, and they're pl- also playing with, with timing. Um, fourth meal. You know, that's, uh, I, I know that one. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Or, uh, and sizes. Um, because uh, addictions have doses. So a person starts out as uh, uh, having occasional cigarette. And occasion- they work their way up and their dose is a pack a day. Or my dose is a pack and a half. And you find your dose. You, you accelerate, you stay at your dose, and, and you're there. So if, if it's fast food at night, there's a certain amount that you want every night, and you tend to not go under, and you tend to not go too much over that dose. You, you get there. And so the scientists want to know what that is. They want to package that for you to maximize their profit. That's, yeah, that's yeah, it's very interesting and, and kind of scary science. Uh, at, at it it is scary, but, but if people want to blame somebody, stop blaming your parents or your upbringing or yourself or your weak will. There are people working hard to addict you, and they're, they're going to do it. And, and, and not only do they figure out what's going to be in the, the food, but they also make sure it's dangled in front of you. Mm-hmm. There was a time when gas stations sold gasoline. Now, nowadays, you go and you fill your car and you can't pay for it without being confronted by every possible snack food that's there. Um, you can go into bookstores and at the cash register, they've got these, these same kinds of things. It's because the manufacturers figured out ways to dangle their stuff in front of you and they'll do it on television. They'll do it everywhere they can. Oh, sure. They've even got TVs at the gas pump now. You don't even have to go inside to the store. I mean, they fill up on gasoline and, oh, by the way, fill up on these chips, fill up on this soda as well. Come inside. We've got a great deal going for you. You right. get a nickel exactly. off. Um, we've touched on uh, chocolate a little bit, candy. So sugar, clearly one of the more addictive substances food-wise. What else should we be looking for? Um, well, speaking of sugar... You can take a baby, day one of life, and uh, let's say we're going to draw a blood sample from that baby. We do a little little heel stick. We draw a, a, some blood, put it in, a, in a, a tube, send it to the lab. The baby cries. Instead of doing that, I'll take some sugar, put it in maybe a teaspoon of sugar, put it in a cup of water, and dribble some of it into the baby's mouth with a little syringe. Then you do the heel stick. The baby doesn't cry. Really? Or cries less. Um, and people have noticed this with, with all kinds of things that are painful to the baby um, or would other, uh, like a medical procedure. And they found that sugar acts as a little bit of a painkiller. Um, except if mom was a, hor- a heroin addict. If mother was a heroin addict, uh, sugar tends not to work so well. The po- here's, here's why. Sugar on the tongue triggers the release of opiates in the brain. In turn, those opiates trigger the release of dopamine, the pleasure chemical we were talking about. Right. If the baby happened to have a heroin-addicted mom, the baby was bathing in opiates for nine months and now is basically just in withdrawal. The, the, the baby's in withdrawal wow. after, birth, after birth, and the sugar is not going to really raise the opiate level in that brain to, to the point of, of uh, to be very significant. Wow. Um, so, the, again, the point is... This is everyone. Right. Um, everyone can have this effect from sugar. Now, with chocolate, 
Chocolate sweet, chocolate has sugar added, uh, but a person who wants chocolate doesn't just want a box of Domino sugar. They specifically want chocolate because the chocolate adds, first of all, it's a mixture of some sugar and also the cocoa butter is enhanced. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just it's not just the bean extract. They actually increase the amount of cocoa butter because if you get the right mixture, it's more addicting and more satisfying. Right. There's a little bit of caffeine in chocolate. There is a lot of theobromine. If anybody has a dog and the vet said, don't let your dog have chocolate uh, because the chocolate can hurt the dog. Right. What the vet is thinking of is theobromine. In a human, it's a stimulant. In a dog, it, it is such a stimulant, it can be, pain, it can be fatal. Wow. Um, there are other compounds in chocolate, too, but these help us explain why a person who wants chocolate wants chocolate. <laughs> they don't just want something sweet. Right. They don't want hard candy. Specific. They specifically want chocolate because that's an addiction. Interestingly enough, you can take uh, Narcan, the drug used for heroin yeah. overdose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you give it to a chocolate addict, and then you give them a tray of chocolate. I, I, by the way, I don't, I don't mean a person who appreciates chocolate. I mean a person who will binge on chocolate. Right. You pre-treat them with Narcan, which is a drug that, that effectively knocks – it makes heroin or – morphine or any other narcotic not be able to adhere to the mu receptors in the brain. A chocolate addict will suddenly lose much of their interest in chocolate. Wow. And by the way, this is not a treatment. Um, this is a... <laughs> it, it, you'd have to take it intravenously on your way into the 7-Eleven. Um, this, this, this is a... Um, it's a research tool. Okay. Where a person says, oh, I just like chocolate. I, I just love the taste. I like the mouthfeel. Fine. Let me give you some Narcan. And if your ingestion of that goes way down, that's a sign it was doing something in the brain that we have now blocked. What about a less processed form of chocolate? Say somebody puts just a scoop of cacao powder uh, in a smoothie that they're making. No added sugar. The only sugars that they're getting would be from the natural fruit that are in that. You're getting it to be closer closer to just a flavoring, um, which in and, in and of itself could have some opiate effect. Um, however, what really kicks in the addictive aspect of it is the addition of sugar and the addition of fat. Mm -hmm. The fat-sugar mixtures are are a big thing. Uh, I was mentioning sugar before. Um, People like sugar, but they like it usually mixed with fat. Hmm. Um, A donut. Um, Cookies. People think cookies, they're carbs, they're sugar. Look at the recipe of a cookie. It's got shortening, it's got butter. Um, The fat calories are usually higher than the sugar calories. In fact, almost always. Um, but that fat-sugar mixture is what really gets us hooked more than the sugar alone. I would assume, and this is just my own opinion or hypothesis, I should say, milk chocolate perhaps a little more addictive than dark chocolate because of the increased dairy uh, quantity? Uh, could be two possibilities. One is, is yes, just um, it does change the macronutrient composition. The other is... Um, Dairy adds its own addictive component. Mm. Now, um, we've talked about this before. The, the, the casein, C-A-S-E-I-N, casein protein in milk, breaks apart in your digestion. And as it does so, it releases opiate-like chemicals. Um, there are lots of other amino acids that are released, but, but, but as the casein digests, certain strings of three or four or five or six or seven amino acids little strings of beads, if you will, break out of the casein, they go to the brain, and they attach to exactly the same receptor that heroin would attach to wow. or morphine would attach to. And in fact, they're called casomorphins, casein-derived morphine-like compounds. Um, we presume 
that they are there to calm down the calf. A, a nursing calf mm-hmm. gets milk, whatever nutrients milk may have, and a little bit of feel-good from mom. Um, it's calming to the baby. And, and by the way, the same is true in human milk. There's casomorphins in human milk. Um, but when you turn milk into something that a person is drinking in the amounts that Americans do, you get more casomorphins. Um, and when you turn milk into cheese, the casomorphins are concentrated. So, Dairy that's something until we started doing this show that I was unaware was as addictive as it is. And I'll tell you, right before I went plant-based, I was a milk junkie. I mean, I was drinking close to a gallon of it a day. And let me tell you something, constipated, like you wouldn't believe. Mm, I will right. fully put that out there. And you talked about this a little bit on a previous show, but there's a very good reason for that, isn't there? There, there is. And it's not just that milk doesn't have any fiber you know, to keep you regular. Um, Let's say you had an operation, and after the operation, you got a, a painkiller, um, d- a shot of Demerol or something like that. It's a narcotic uh, to ease the pain. Most common side effect, constipation, because it doesn't just shut down you know, the pain sensation in the brain. It shuts down your digestive tract, the nerves that control that. Um, uh, let's say you linger a little too long at the cheese bar, <laughs> and the next day you know, you're at the drugstore for their uh, anti-constipation uh-huh. remedies. Very, very common side effect. And what we think is going on is you're just, it's just the effect of the casomorphins. Um, they're, they're in direct contact with the gut wall, and they are shutting down the normal peristalt- peristaltic movements. Um, so, yeah, you, know, you get addicted to something, you're going to get constipated. And Yeah, I can think of more pleasant days, my friend. Um, yeah, I'm going to call it uh, cheese, I say, is dairy crack. And I you, would agree with that. You know, no, I don't... Milk, milk has a little bit of casomorphin, but cheese has the mother load of it. And so a lot of people will say, I could be vegan, except for cheese. Um, I have to say, it's, it's parenthetically, perhaps the most important thing to get away from. Right. Um, only because it is 70% fat, mostly saturated fat. It's got hormones in it. I'm talking about estrogens from the, the fact that the cow was pregnant nine months out, right. of, out of the year. It's got, there's all, every reason to get away from it. Right. Plus, it's not just the casomorphin that makes it addicting. It's also, in this case, a fat-salt mixture. There's more salt in cheese than there, than there is in potato chips. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of fat. It's about 70% fat as a percentage of calories. That fat-salty mixture, that's why we love French fries, potato chips, onion rings, and cheese. And, and that makes sense because when I go back and I think about what it was that I used to eat, I was never a chocoholic. That was never my vice. I was never right. a candy guy. But you look at what I was eating, those taquitos, those trips to Taco Bell, all of those items loaded with cheese, loaded and I cannot explain why for one person it's going to be cheese and for another person it's chocolate and for another person it's sugar. That I don't know. And, and even among, let's say you take people where alcohol is their issue. Why for one person is it wine and another person it's liquor and another person it's beer? Um, why those things happen, I have no earthly idea. Um, why is it that one person gets hooked on menthol cigarettes and another person on regular cigarettes? But what we do know is that the final co- common pathway is always the same. Yeah. It's always dopamine. It triggers dopamine, and then the next day, you borrowed all that dopamine. It's now gone to you. It, you, you don't have it anymore, so you feel rotten mm-hmm. until you can conjure up another dopamine hit to just feel halfway normal. What about processed meat? That's something that we talk about a lot here. Let's... The king of all processed meats, bacon. 
why is bacon such an addictive thing? Everybody, you know, that's everything's better with bacon. Why? Well, first of all, uh, it should be noted that when people have an addictive substance, they, they don't do, take alcohol, they don't do a commercial saying, buy our beer. It makes you drunker. <laughs> um, it's it's going to get you drunk really fast. I hope not. Um, but honestly, that's why people are buying it, right? Of course. Um, uh, buy our cigarette. It it will give you that nicotine hit fast. If it were honest advertising, that's what they would say. But what they do is they want to instead create an aura. So the aura is our bottle of wine came from Tuscany. And it was on beautiful grapes that looked fabulous in the sunrise, you know, covered with you. Yeah, or um, our back when cigarette advertising was was legal, back in my youth, it was you're a cowboy. Yep. Um, or you're a cool jazz musician or whatever. They always create an aura. So um, that's true with food. Um, Arby's, we have the meat. Um, what, what do they mean? What they mean is I'm masculine. I'm powerful. Now, of course, you might be, you might have erectile dysfunction and be overweight and, and whatever, but you're going to have this image that surrounds the meat product <laughs> with regard. So, so bacon has worked very hard to cultivate the fact that it's not just muscles ripped out of a really unhappy pig, um, despoiling the planet and making North Carolina look like just an environmental disaster. I yeah. mean, there, there is everything bad about this product. Um, but... Uh, they make it sound cool, and it's addictive for a variety of reasons, but to cut to the chase, I mentioned Narcan. You can give Narcan to Hank, um, inject it into his arm, and if he's a bacon addict, he will eat less bacon. Really? Meaning that it's not just because he likes the taste. It's because it's working on his brain. It it triggers the release of dopamine. and you can quantify, and, and by the way, not just bacon, but with other meats too. But with bacon, what do you have going for it? You have meat. We see this, you could see it even with tuna a little bit. But with bacon, it's quite high in fat, especially saturated fat, which is also in chocolate. Um, but now, a lot of salt goes in. It's salt cured. Oh, yeah. Um, so nobody takes bacon. You know, they, they don't want just um, some raw pork or something like that. They, they want it cooked up, greased up, salted up. Um, cured, and that's what they're going to love. The tragedy of all this, I mean, there's many tragedies. Uh, what happens on the farms is horrible for the, for the animals. It's disgusting. For the environment, it's horrible. Um, for your health, it's terrible. But there was just a report that came out about two, three days ago looking at cancers in people under the age of 50. Unlike all the progress that we are slowly but surely making against cancer, we are losing the battle on colorectal cancer, um, and the reason is that bacon is a fad. Wow. And we're, we have developed this nihilistic attitude that, ah, live it up. It's wonderful. Let's go out to the breakfast place and just have it and, and treat our sons and daughters to it so that it's part of their life. Let's serve it in schools. Let's serve it in hospitals. Um, the, the very hospital that will not give you Cigarettes. They will not let you smoke. They, they used to sell them. They don't sell them anymore. We'll sell you bacon, despite the fact that it's a major contributor to the second leading cause of cancer death, which is colorectal cancer. I'm not sure that a lot of people uh, are, are truly aware of that yet. And it probably has to do with that strong marketing campaign uh, from the, the bacon people. Not aware of the link with cancer, you mean? Right. 
as substantial as it is, or yeah. they're just willy-nilly about it. Matter of fact, let me tell you a story. Uh, I went down uh, – we recently did the Break Up With Bacon campaign, mm-hmm. and I interviewed people outside of a hospital where we had placed one of our advertisements and asked them about bacon, and I gave them some statistics. I think all but one of them said that they were still going to continue to eat the bacon. So I don't know if it's a matter of them not taking it seriously or they don't believe the science or what it is. When I was uh, a medical student and resident, um, it was quite normal for us to smoke cigarettes. Mm -hmm. Our hospital sold them and we bought them and we would light up. Our patients could smoke in bed. Hmm. Uh, unless unless oxygen was flowing, that was the, like, the only exception. <laughs> right, um, back but, but but it goes to your point. Um, it wasn't that we didn't know the risk. In that case, we clearly knew that lung cancer was was caused by tobacco, um, and we weren't stupid people or uneducated people. But what we had was the sense that we could wait. Um, that we had time. And yeah, I, I know I got to quit sooner or later, but for right now, I like this. I'm under stress. And I think with food habits, it's like that. I, I am not paying a big price yet. Um, I guarantee you, a nodule shows up in your chest x-ray, that person crushes that pack, <laughs> close it, throws it in the trash yeah. that minute. Um, so it's really a question of a person just reaching that point. However, um, with bacon and, frankly, all the, all the processed meats, turkey bacon, sausage, uh, ham, hot dogs, all of them are linked to colorectal cancer and, and also breast cancer and esophageal cancer and pancreatic cancer and stomach cancer. Um, but there, there hasn't been a big public education campaign, or at least not a very successful one, nothing, nothing rivaling what happened with tobacco. Um, and so if people don't even know about it, then there isn't really any pressure mm. on a hospital or a school to stop selling these things. Two more quick points before we uh, wrap things up. Uh, I got a chart here, uh, and it shows the rate of obesity um, over the last 60 or so years. And what particularly struck out at me was the obesity rate, but then if you look at the bottom, you have the extreme obesity rate, and both of them climbing substantially. If you look at just the extreme obesity rate, it's grown 900% over the last half century or so. And I would assume that that is because we have become more and more of a quote-unquote fast food nation. And more of those processed foods and and, uh, highly addictive foods that we've been talking about are becoming part of the standard American diet. Yeah, it's it's not – obesity is not caused by a lack of exercise. Um, Exercise patterns have changed some over time, but not really dramatically. And and way back when, we weren't seeing it in people like – the barber who's just standing all day long or the, pers- or the person who's got a shop um, right below their apartment. You know, mm-hmm. these people aren't exercising very much. They weren't, they weren't heavy. Um, it's been food changes. Meat went up and up and up and up until about 2004, 2005. Since then, it's been dropping a little bit, which, okay. which is good. Cheese, I'm sorry to tell you, has been shooting up like there's no tomorrow. Um, and I think that's one of the bigger reasons uh, for obesity. Sugar um, went up until about 1999. For the past 20 years, it's been dropping, mm-hmm. which is good. Um, but the cheese is a big, big problem. So the final question is this. Somebody's hearing this podcast. Or they're recognizing, like, okay, I have a problem. I am a cheese addict. I'm a chocoholic. I can't go a day without bacon. What do they do? How do you break that food addiction? Oh, great question. Uh, several things. Um, first, first of all, don't beat yourself up. As I mentioned earlier, this is not your fault. 
at all. It's not, it's not you. It's the food. Foods have the capacity to addict anybody. And we saw this in, in, say, Vietnam with heroin. You know, people were over there, and there's heroin around. Virtually everybody, you know, who used it would get hooked. But when they would come back to the U.S. and heroin wasn't, like, available to them or whatever, they, they would just break away from it. So, so the point I'm making is it's the substance that's to blame, not you. Um, secondly, focus on the short term. Um, don't think, oh, I just love X food. The, the idea of life without it is intolerable to me. For, don't worry about that. Just focus on, for right now, I'm not going to have it. That's the reason why with Alcoholics Anonymous, one day at a time, right. or uh, a smoking cessation program, we focus on now, not, not forever. That makes it a lot easier. Um, don't let yourself get super hungry. In other words, eat breakfast. Eat lunch. Eat dinner. Um, at least a little bit, because otherwise, uh, when you're really hungry, cravings kick in, and we just throw our resolve out the, the, the window. Um, be aware of the cycle. Uh, what is your time when the, when the cravings kick in? And if it kicks in, do something inconsistent with that behavior. So uh, if it happens when you're alone and it's in the evening, then don't be alone. You know, do something so that it can't happen. Um, don't do it in moderation. You will find that moderation drags you right back into it. It's better if something doesn't love you, you just got to break up a bad relationship, get it out of your life. Man, yeah, whatever. That, it is. That's that's a tough. People debate that one all day long. Well, I'm going to be clear about this, and, and there may be there are people who can do th- certain things in moderation. The person who smokes at uh, the occasional party, that's a person where they just aren't addicted yet. But if you're smoking every single day and you have not, you have broken free. And it's now been two months and you haven't had a cigarette. If you decide to light up the next day, you're back up to a pack a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's once, once you have gotten into the addiction and your brain has decided, okay, this is me now, um, at that point, moderation doesn't work. Right. Moderation only for you is going to work for healthy things like broccoli. You can have a moderate amount of broccoli and, right, and brown rice and all these things. But for something that's going to hurt you, you don't want to have it at all. Um, uh, a couple of things. Uh, dopamine can be released by all the drugs and foods that we've been describing, but it's also released by exercise. Um, so if you can can bring exercise into your life, do it. And by the way, don't wait until you want to. Some of the best advice I ever got was I read somewhere somebody saying, I never want to. <laughs> I never want to. And this is this is the phrase, just do it. You know, all right, to heck with it. I don't feel like exercising. So just do it. And what you discover is... About halfway through, you're into it, yeah. and then you're glad you did. And the next day, you're not going to want to do it again. But just for you know, you if you wait until you want to, you will never do it. But exercise gives you a little bit of dopamine release. That's good. Now, in order to um, once you've exercised, you got to make sure that you like plan it, put it on your schedule, treat it like an appointment with yourself. Do it with someone else so that if you don't show up, they will call you. Um, and don't forget to sleep. Ten o'clock at night. I don't care how good your book is. Go to sleep. Because if you have had a rotten night, if you stayed up all night, you'll eat anything just to get through the day. Sure. But if you are well-rested, you've got a little extra hedge against things that would otherwise call, call your name. And maybe my last tip is think about other motivators, things that matter to you. Um, a lot of people will break up with cheese, meat, for the animals. Um, once you've seen what they go through, you think, all right, I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. Mm-hmm. Or, or they will do it for the environment. Or they'll do it for their son mm-hmm. or their daughter 
or their wife. You know, I don't want to be an enabler for somebody who's near to me. Think whatever those motivations are. Um, let them play out in your mind. You put these things together. Addictions are still powerful. Yeah. But these things will help you. And if you've uh, broken up and it didn't stick, who cares? Dust yourself off. Get back on. Uh, one, one last thing I, sh- I should mention. Um, earlier in the program, I was talking about it's not you. There are people who actually do genetically have less dopamine activity naturally. Other people have more. Um, some people have fewer dopamine receptors in their brain. They're just born that way. So it is true that those people discover that cigarettes or alcohol or drugs or food call out to them even more because it gives them the dopamine other people are getting naturally. Hmm. However, the, dis, despite the fact that there are these actual physical differences, and some people are a little bit more set up for addictions than others, as I mentioned at the beginning, the food industry can addict absolutely Anybody. Yes, indeed. Um, given the opportunity, they will do it. And uh, the good news is that we can break away. And, and once you've been free of it, you just, you just get momentum. You liked being, you know, stuffing yourself with food. You like smoking. But you like not doing that. Right. You like not doing that even better. Right. Um, and, and you get great momentum in that direction. Well, as a guy who has been through all of that, I can tell you that your advice is spot on. You and I have never talked about your tips, but those are virtually the exact steps that, that I yeah. took. So that is that is really, really good advice. So very much appreciate you being here today, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. It's great as always. It's not your fault. If you're a food addict, it is not your fault. Those are important words from Dr. Barnard there on the podcast. And we do live in a society where we are constantly tempted to eat foods that are the most addictive. We've talked about cheese and we heard about sugar and chocolate and how the brain just goes bananas for those things. Bananas. And those foods are all around us. All around us. It's not your fault. I can guarantee you that there is so much more to food addiction, and we're definitely going to have to revisit it here on the exam room. Matter of fact, I put up a poll on Twitter recently, at Chuck Carroll WLC. That's Carroll with two R's and two L's, and then WLC standing for Weight Loss Champion. So I put that poll up on my Twitter account, at Chuck Carroll WLC, and I asked what topics you would like to hear on the show. And the number one answer, the number one answer was food addiction. You better believe it. You better believe it. So we are not done with this yet. Not by a long shot. Stay tuned for more. And if if there's ever anything specific that you think we missed, whether it be on food addiction or any other show that we do, please tweet me and I will make a note and we will try not to forget it the next time we touch that topic. It comes back around. I'll do my best to take care of you. And uh, by the way, thank you for the follow. Coming up in just a second, my conversation with Sarah Frazier, all about her struggle with food addiction and how practicing mindful eating has helped to get her back on track. But first, I wanted to remind you that this segment is sponsored by Treeline Tree Nut Cheese, maker of soft, spreadable French-style cheeses, premium New York-style cream cheeses, and tangy aged artisanal cheeses that you can slice or grate Treeline Vegan Cheese is made from cashews and cultured and aged to perfection. And 
It is free from dairy. It is free from gluten and soy and added oils. And oh, by the way, it's kosher too. Treeline Cheese is available at Whole Foods, Kroger, and Health Food Stores, plus co-ops and grocery stores nationwide. To learn more, maybe find some recipes, head on over to treelinecheese.com. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hola, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks for listening today. Hey, you know, if you're listening to this, there's a good chance you got your mobile phone in one hand, and so why don't you just go ahead and flip on the old Twitters or the Instagrams, at PCRM and at Chuck Carroll, WLC. Carroll, two R's, two L's, WLC, as always, standing for weight loss champion. We will both appreciate your follow. Well, wait. And we thank you. (laughs) Today's show is about food addiction and mindful eating. And it wasn't hard for me to go and find my next guest because she is somebody who I have known for a very long time, uh, knew me long before I lost any weight, uh, is my radio brethren and a close personal friend. And actually, she is my idol in new media. With that, we welcome to the show, Sarah Frazier. Oh, man, that is awesome. Thank you, Chuck. I know we have known each other. And I appreciate that about new media because isn't it the frontier? Like, I love where it's headed. But see, you, you've embraced it and you've long embraced it. You've graduated. You've gone from radio. Then you started doing TV here across the street at Fox 5 yep. in, in Washington. Yep. And and. Then you got your podcast, your website, you're doing vlogs, like you, you're streaming everything live, you're super active on the gram, like you're just all over the place. <laughs> you know what it takes to get that name and the Hey Frage podcast out there, and it takes a lot. It does. It's it's a full-time job, and when people, you know, I love your podcast, and but when people say they're going to start one, I'm always like, guys, you have no idea how much, especially if you're going to make it a brand, if you're going to monetize it, if you're going to get it to the masses, it's a lot of work. Yeah. 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 I I know. Yeah, you know. You know know. what it takes. I I mean, I I love – you've had me on your show – in, in the past, and we've talked about media and the changing landscape there. And, you know, I just I, – again, I will say for our listeners, like, I am so envious of the way that you have gambled on yourself oh. and, and stopped working for um, – you know, full time for these big corporations and drawing your salary, doing a daily traditional radio show. You said, no, no, this all about me. And I think that part of that is because you have this confidence because you have taken control of your life physically, you know, and what I did not know. You're about so you, right. What I did not know about you until recently is that you are a fellow weight, su- uh, weight loss success story. Yes. Yes. And I'll tell you, um, you know, I lost, first of all, I'm, I'm five, three. Um, and you know, you and I've talked about this. I've loved having you on my podcast because you're such an inspiration to so many people, including myself. Um, but you know, I started my first diet when I was 12 years old, (laughs) went to my first Weight Watchers class, was always a chunky kid. My brother and I were both overweight growing up and um, I started riding horses and (laughs) this was in rural Maine so believe me it wasn't like uh, we were no you know I was not Bruce Springsteen's daughter here on this like equestrian amazing is, it, is know, that a thing in million Maine? dollar is horse equestrian? No, no. no there was just this little barn in Maine and when I went you know one of the instructors because we, we do little horse shows around Maine you know but she would always say that fat girls don't win 
horse show competitions. Wow. So that was the first time that weight really became, you know, kids had picked on me, but it was really like somebody saying to me, you know, you really need to lose weight. So I started my first fat-free diet. And uh, then shortly after that, went to Weight Watchers. This was all like 12, 13, 14 years old. Weight Watchers let you enroll at that age? You better believe it. Wow. They let me enroll. They got me on the scale. Because, you know, at that time, they really had weigh-in. So the minute you came there, you had to weigh in. And they, you know... Did you gain a pound? Did you lose a pound or whatever from the week before? Um, and that started years of 17 years until I was about 28 years old and discovered mindful eating of I gained and lost 150 pounds. Jeez Louise. So it was, yeah, it was crazy. And then, um, you know, about six years ago, I had had it. You know my career in media. Oh, yes. I was in radio um, in Washington, D.C. for a long time and then on Fox 5. And I would get messages from people and they would say to me, oh, you'd be so pretty if you just lost 20 pounds. Okay. Let me stop right oh, there. Yeah, because the my wife, who's on TV, also gets those kinds of messages. And I don't know why people feel that they have the right to go ahead and like just put that out there like they're sending it to somebody who's not real as if you and and local broadcasters are just fictional characters that happen to be on tv those are real words going to real people and they can be devastating devastating Devastating. and they were devastating to me and i the other one that stuck with me is i used to for the washington nationals for a season i was there in stadium host and um i had you know i was doing a game or whatever and a guy said to me he said uh, you know he tweeted at me and uh, you know this was just like so devastating to me but um he was like wow i can't believe that they're allowing santa claus to i had like a belt on and he said i can't believe they're allowing santa claus to um to basically in stadium (laughs) which like at the time now you know look i've I've come a long way so what people say about my appearance i don't give a darn i really don't and you know this about me I do not care. It's why I take my shirt off on my Instagram all the time. I'm in my bikini. I'm like, I could care less. That's at Hey Frage. <laughs> H-E-Y-F-R-A-S-E. You'll see me a lot. I don't give a rat's patootie anymore. <laughs> but, you know, I found six years ago, I was desperate. I really was. I could not, the thought of going on another diet, the thought of going to a trainer and weighing in, I just was honestly, Chuck, I was ready to quit media. I was ready to walk away because I... I emotionally felt like I couldn't take it anymore mm. because my up until that point, my value was so much put on what I looked like mm. and what I weighed. And I believed starting from 12 years old that, you know, they didn't put fat women on TV. They wouldn't put a woman on TV that didn't look a certain way. So in a desperate search, I just Googled giving up dieting uh, Washington, D.C. And Circle Yoga in Chevy Chase was having a it was all about mindful eating, mindful living, taking control of your life. And um, if you have done every diet and you're fed up, come to this seminar. And they had a woman named Robin Mize as their mindful eating therapist. And I honestly couldn't wait. It was like three weeks away. So I called Robin. I said, are you taking on new clients? And she said, yeah. And I started the next day. And um, it, it, it really took me about three years to master mindful eating. But when I came to Robin, I was probably 30 pounds, 25, 30 pounds heavier than I am now. Okay. I don't own a scale. I weigh 135 only because when I go to the doctor, they've got a way you to kind of keep a general idea of where you're at. Um, but I... I I was probably about 160 when I saw her, and I lost, um, over those three years, I lost 30 pounds, found my natural weight, and um, I've kept it off ever since. That's phenomenal. Yeah. That is really, really kind of cool. Now, you talk about mindful eating. Uh, 
for me, my experience was it didn't matter if I was in front of the TV. It didn't matter if I was at a movie. It didn't matter if I was at my desk at work. Like, I was just going to go. I was going to fill my stomach until, like, I literally could not add another bite in there. It, the food was all the way up my esophagus, just, like, right there at my throat. Was that the problem for you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so what 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 was your daily diet like? I was a big binge eater and a big restrictor. So what I would do is like, let's say I in my mind, I would say Monday through Thursday, I'm going to be really good. And that would mean a, a heavy restriction of calories. So I at that time I was eating meat. So I would eat like a chicken breast, like very little dressing on it, um, broccoli, maybe a tiny sweet potato. Um, and then lunch, you know, would be something very restricted, maybe a yogurt. So by the time I got to Thursday, it was like my binge night. So then I would go and order a medium pizza. I'd have half a dozen cupcakes. It was like all bets were off. And, uh, you know, I just, I would eat myself sick. I would eat myself sick. Um, And then the next day I'd wake up, I'd be bloated. My fingers would be swollen. Um, Mentally, I was foggy. I was depressed. Um, And I did that cycle for years. Um, And it just was so... Oh my God, my life revolved. I can't even tell you, and sometimes I even get emotional about it. My life from the moment I woke up until I went to bed was all about thinking about calories in, calories out, when could I exercise, and when could I binge. Right. It was an obsession. What, those days that you were calorie restricted, I'm curious because this is talking about food addiction today. How was that for you? So you, you, you go on this binge and then the next day you wake up and you're not eating that stuff anymore. Talk to me about how you felt the the first day that you cut that stuff back out of your diet. Oh my god, I hated. It. I was depressed. Yeah. I was depressed. Yeah. I there was so much shame, you know, as someone yo-yo dieting. Um you know, I, in my mind, I just beat myself up. And I also, and, and at that time, too, I was so, like, I was single. I was so trying to find a man, trying to find a date. And I was always like, you know, who's going to love me once they find out that basically the way they think I eat is really fake? You right. know, because how I really eat is alone, ashamed, eating all this food, and then regretting it and totally beating myself up the next day. Mm-hmm. So my self-worth was so on other people, on the side of uh, size of my genes. Um, and it was just, it was mental torture. I couldn't even be creative in our industry, in, in entertainment, because I was obsessed with what I look like and, and how much weight I'd gained or lost. So much pressure. People think that there's yeah. not pressure e- even in radio because you're not technically on camera, but there is these days because of social media, because of Facebook, you know, and, and the videos that you have to do for everything. You're always on camera. And so that pressure, I don't care what medium you're in, is there. Yeah. And you're in a major market on a syndicated show yeah. at that point, yeah. which is which is huge. That's pressure. It was a lot of pressure. And people would say to me, they'd come up and meet me and they'd go, wow, I hear you on the radio and I always thought you'd be tall and thin and blonde. And you're you're like, nope, short, little round, dark hair. (laughs) Okay, but that's every radio announcer ever. Okay, so (laughs) I I mean, nobody ever said, hey, I thought you were going to be tall and blonde. Chuck Carroll, tall, blonde, thin. But I, I mean, come on. No, nobody ever meets a radio announcer and says, hmm, you look exactly like who I thought. Right. You know, right. I mean, I can't tell you, like working with Glenn Hollis, who did the love oh, song sure. show I was producing, nobody thought Glenn looked the way that Glenn actually did. <laughs> Everybody thought Glenn was like George Clooney. You oh, know? my God. I bet. Oh, my you God. Know? Meanwhile. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, hilarious. Exactly. Hilarious. Uh, I want to go back to your childhood and ask you 
Why do you think it was that you started turning to food for comfort? And, and at what point did it become kind of an addiction for you? Well, there's two reasons, I think, and I've had a lot of conversations. My family, I'm very grateful, and I thank God all the time, are very open. My mom and I have an amazing relationship. So there's two reasons I've gone back. One is, and I know, I think you know this, but my father actually passed away from esophageal and stomach cancer when I was in high school. Right. Very young, 14 years old. And we were a really close family. I had a great father. So... And of course, you know, it's funny because now in educating myself, he never ate well, you know, drank, smoked until we were probably born, but um, but never ate well, you mm. know. Um, so one was that we never really dealt with that family trauma until I was much older in life. And two, when my mother grew up, she was born a little after the Depression, 48 way after the depression sorry i meant world war ii after world war ii 48 and she was one of 10 kids so they did not have a lot of money so my mom and later in life told us you know she would go to bed hungry at times so when she had kids and my parents started out you know just becoming middle class she never wanted us to feel hunger so there was a lot of overfeeding you know and in her mind because she had grown up so hungry at times and thin a chubby baby and a chubby kid was a was a ha- healthy, happy kid. Right. So yeah. the, lots of those. So food became comfort and fun and like, oh, are you having any trouble? Let's go for an ice cream. You know, that, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. And now I'm thinking back to my own childhood and, and it was my grandma, my, my dad's mother, who kind of introduced us, my brother and I, to these unhealthy foods. But I will never forget. And, and, and Sarah, I don't know why this memory stayed with me, but I remember specifically sitting in the living room, like probably eating my second or third hot dog with baked beans and macaroni and cheese. And I'm in elementary school, probably second or third grade, and grandma like looking at me and she said, grandma loves to watch her boys eat. Mm. And and so she's deriving pleasure from, I guess, the pleasure that I'm getting from eating these foods. She also grew up without a lot of money. So what you're saying makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I think they lived, right. It's a totally different era. You know, they knew what it was like to not have a lot, you know. So I think I can see how your grandmother, my mother, there was a lot of joy in knowing you can have as much as you want. Right, right. You Completely know? oblivious to the damage that they're actually doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. You know, it's all, and we kind of joke at, you know, we tease my mother now because, um, you know, and my mother had an amazing and still has a really great metabolism. So, you know, she'd often get up in the morning and she'd have like a piece of pie for breakfast. And <laughs> a la mode, perhaps? A la mode, completely. And she'd never gain an ounce. But, you know, my dad was chunky. We got those genes. So that was just, it was her joy to see that we were never hungry. Interesting. And I remember going from those feasts at grandma's house, and then mom would come and pick us up after she got off of work, single mother. And um, she would ask, did you guys eat? I said, no. You know? And so from there, after you know, binging on hot dogs, baked beans, and, and macaroni and cheese straight out of the blue box, yeah. <laughs> we would then go to the drive-thru. And, you know, and so here I am, this little elementary school kid. I'm already going through the Burger King drive-thru, and I'm ordering, like, the king-size meals. You know, king-size, uh, I remember it. It was double cheeseburger, ketchup only, king-size, of course, and uh, an orange uh, sure, orange soda. Drink. Absolutely, yeah. we always yeah. used to go to McDonald's too. Yeah, in, our, and now, in the eighties, right? You know, like you were like an eighties kid. I was an eighties kid. Our parents never even th- questioned. You know, what was in that food? Was it healthy? Was it addictive? Mm-hmm. How much salt? It was like, oh, you want a happy meal? Sure, 
Yeah. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Milkshake, absolutely. Give me two or three of them. Yep. Oh, those milkshakes, they were the best, weren't they? Uh, <laughs> they I mean, were, but then, I don't know. I had them, I don't know, several years as an adult. They're not that great now. It, it's funny how we still romanticize, though, those things. I do. I lost all of that weight. I wouldn't touch that milkshake with a 10-foot pole. Mm. I know what drinking it would do to my body now, and yet I still have fond memories about the milkshake. Well, and that's what mindful eating is all about, because when I started with Robin, you know, there was a lot of romanticizing how great pizza was and a binge of cupcakes. So, you know, one of the practices of mindful eating is you have to eat without distraction, and you have to slow it way down. Mm. You know, you actually have to taste the food. You have to taste it on your lips. You have to taste it on your tongue. You have to eat, you know, 20 bites. How does it taste after? So all these foods that you romanticize with mindful eating, you go through and you eat now in a very conscious way. And it's fascinating because they never taste like what you think they're going to taste like. And right. the irony, of course, is you put a raisin in your mouth and you chew it around. And actually, by the time you swallow and eat it, it's delicious. Yeah. Yeah. But in your mind, you think the salt and vinegar chip is. Well, the salt and vinegar chip, once it dissolves, and then it's sort of cake-like and cardboard-like, right? Oh. So that was a great, that was a, an amazing exercise that took me a long time to master, but um, was terrific to go back because same thing i used to my mother was always searching for the perfect dessert mm. you know so we drive all over the state of maine looking for this great donut and then when you got there it's just a donut and right. sure some are better than others but for the most part they're not that amazing right and so unpacking all that and realizing there is no magical dessert you know and in fact all these things you think are going to taste great really don't mm. today when you get to a point where you start to feel full do you have that moment where you're like ah i'm full now i'm done and you immediately are able to recognize that put the fork down and walk away yes 100 percent. Oh, okay that's something that to this day i still struggle with and this really? is why food addiction is is very difficult it's not so much that i struggle putting down the fork it's that there's still part of me that for whatever reason like gets a little angry a little bit upset like Dag on it. I'm not going to be able to eat anymore. You know, it's time to stop. Like, I'm upset because I still derive such joy mm. from it. And, like, I completely recognize that that is part of food addiction. And now I refuse to continue eating because I'm petrified of putting weight back on, even though obviously today I'm not eating those types of foods that I used to. I'm eating that whole food plant based diet and I'm feeling great. But food addiction, man, like it doesn't matter what it really is. And it's, it doesn't go away. At it's least not so for me. funny. No, it didn't for me. I tricked myself, though, in the sense of I from for the first two years of mindful eating, I would tell myself because that was what Robin always, you know, in my house, I never kept cookies because if I had one cookie, I was going to eat the dozen, you right, know, like. Right. So one of the things, too, with mindful eating is you have to keep these so-called forbidden off limit addictive foods in your home to realize you can have a bite, put it down, come back if you want another bite. And for a long time, I had to tell myself, if you're hungry, you can eat whatever you want. There's no more on Thursday is the day you can eat. Now on on Monday, on Sunday, on Tuesday, anytime if you want a pizza, you can have a pizza. Mm. Of course, the irony is, as you know, with plant-based, with mindful eating, once you start eating healthy, you crave that stuff and not you get out of the addiction at least right. for me of the burgers and all that stuff and i think too for years i'd eaten myself so sick i just 
now I, I can't, I just don't want to go back. Oh, there's no question. You know, I have moments and I, I, you know, even sometimes I'll, I'll be full and I'll put the fork down, but I'll think, oh, I could just, you know, I, I'd like a whole nother plate of that. Yeah. But then I think to myself, no, you know what it's going to be like after. Right. It's, it's just not worth it. It's right. totally, you, you're talking about 10 minutes of pleasure versus days, if not longer of, you yep. know, misery. Um, the funny thing though, like those foods though, we were just talking about the milkshake. Like I'm also an ex smoker. And so from time to time, mm. like out of nowhere, I'll get in a, a craving for a cigarette. And then just as quickly, I'm like, Ugh, you know, never again. No, no, right. no. You know, but if I'm watching a game and a commercial comes on for Taco Bell or something like that, it's like for a split second, I'm like, oh, Gordita Crunch, you know. But right. then I'm like, no, there's just no way. I cannot possibly do it. But right. it's so interesting and fascinating to me the way that the mind hangs on to those types of things. Absolutely. So, so fascinating to me. Um Let's transition. I want to ask you, obviously, you're here at the exam room, so yes. plant-based all the way, baby. Um, you are familiar with it. Uh, how vegan are you? I guess that's that's the best way to ask it. I am a faithful vegan three to four days a week, and okay. I created my own thing called Plant 4, which, I, which people now on my Instagram and social media make fun of me, because four days a week, I'm plant-based. Okay. And that means, you know, no meat, no fish, no dairy. Um, we subscribe to Purple Carrot as our um, meal delivery prep service, which is all a vegan service. Um, delicious. You get, you know, a couple meals. We get three a week, and then um, that usually lasts us four days. Um, and my significant other, Dan, and I have been together for six years, and he's really a hardcore vegan. Um, so, you know, for me, the hardest part has been giving up... Um, um, I really crave steak. I'm not sure mm. why. Red meat has been the the biggest thing to really give up. It's because I watched What the Health, fell in love with Dr. Barnard, got to interview him for Channel Five, and he had said, you know, cheese would be people's Achilles heel. Yeah. So funny for me, it's like it's a steak. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm like, actually, I could do without all the cheese. I like nutritional yeast a lot. Oh yeah, the nooch. So, I like the nooch on, uh, and I like the nooch with uh, macaroni. Macaroni and nooch is great. Macanooch. Macanooch, <laughs> we love. We do a lot of that. But for some reason, it's been that. It's been the iron or, or whatever I've, I've craved. So um, we love it. We, you know, Dan is much more of a hardcore. I told him, I was like, you have to watch What the Health. And he completely went plant-based. And um, and he has a friend, actually, that knows Dr. Barnard. So he's also been plant-based for a long time. And... Um, yeah, we've just we've loved feeling so much better. So you're doing the plant for how much conflict is there in the house on those other three days in the kitchen? Um, really not much. Like I really try to. Um, it's it's easy. It's no argument with him. Like if I want to make a steak, and I usually don't. You know, I'll usually eat vegetarian those other couple of days, mm. and maybe have like some cheese in it, or you know, might do like a butternut squash soup that has some dairy in it. Um. But no, he's really great. He's totally taking it on himself. He cooks his ginger tofu, you know, every Monday and his chickpeas. And so he, you know, does everything he needs to do. Um, we don't have any kids yet, so we'll see how that plays out. <laughs> could, could get more complicated if we have right. a kid. But so far, good. Non-judgmental, no, no barbs or anything like that being thrown? None. Good. Yeah, he's good. really good about it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm so thrilled and I always... He's, like I said, much more hardcore. And I know in your house, I love Julie. Like, you know, you're much more hardcore. Is Julie yeah. full-time vegan now? Yeah, pretty. I mean, I'll give her 95%. 100% vegetarian, 95% vegan. 
Okay, so that's kind of very similar in our house. But I'm so, you know, he, when I first met Dan six years ago, I mean, he was still eating at CeCe's Pizza, and it's like an ongoing joke. I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, I cannot believe that you... So his health has done such a 180. Yeah. I'm so proud of him, and I, I just encourage him all the time, like, keep going. You know, I want us to live long lives and, and be healthy. So I love when he's like, hey, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to eat this. Go ahead and eat it if you want, but I'm really you know sticking to my vegan i'm always like awesome you know you do have it. done such yeah do it do it i mean that's huge i mean have you seen the studies that show you know uh, men who eat a plant-based diet add you know close to a decade or more uh, onto their lifespan compared to it. a standard american diet like that's huge especially huge. you know if you're looking at partnering up for life i mean like that's that's good you're you're getting quality years well into your golden years Yes, and it's it's wonderful, and it's just had such a trickle-down effect for our families. We cook vegan when we go back to Maine, and, you know, I grew up Irish, you know, on both sides, Irish and Scott. Bra. No, yeah. well, <laughs> top of the morning to you, so, Sarah. <laughs> you know how it is. Every, you know, meat, potato, vegetable oh, was yeah. how we grew up. You oh, know, yeah. pot roast on Sunday, that whole thing. Um, so it's been awesome to see my mom, my brother. They also, they're vegetarian. They're vegan a lot of nights, and it's great to see them go, hey, yeah, let's do some chickpea, you know, uh, patties and um, they're so open to it. So it's great to see the effect that plant-based is having. It's funny. Like, when you first went home and you were like, hey, so I'm doing this plant-based diet now. It's really kind of cool. Was it met with a little bit of skepticism? And then maybe when you put some stuff on their table, they're like, hmm. That doesn't look half bad. Let me let me go ahead and try that. I would say more on Dan's side of the family. They're oh, really? Midwesterners, and I'd, they love their hot dogs. They love, you know, um, their Midwestern um, chicken chop suey. <laughs> a lot of Midwest deep dish buddies pizza. Hold from, on, is that a thing? Chick, Midwestern chicken chop suey? I don't That's know. That's a they thing? Make, they make it every summer when we go up there. Okay. So, so they were a little more skeptical because this past summer we went to Detroit and every single night Dan cooked vegan for Dan and myself. Um, but, you know, by the end of the week, the family wanted to try everything. They cool. wanted to try. Yeah. So people are very curious, I think. All right. And they're in Michigan. If yeah. they ever get serious... I got just the guy for them to, to reach out to. Who His is that? It's Mark Ramirez. Okay. Uh, former Michigan University of Michigan football player uh, has been on the show friend of mine I love this guy such an inspirational story uh, I mean diabetes and obesity just ravaged his family I mean claimed a number of lives wow and you know mark was headed down that road and you know instead of having amputations because of the effects of diabetes wow. you know like mark is you would never know that he had a problem now. Got off all of his medication, and he does these food for life classes. Wow! You know he's he's really a cool guy to get to know. So that's amazing. Well, I think we should set them up. I think yes, we, I think we should. Mark Ramirez, and if you're listening and you're not familiar with Mark, at chickpea and bean, he he does this with his wife. I mean, just just oh, a I remarkable tag team. Yeah, okay. very cool people. Very cool people. Um. How much time do we have left here? We got about 10 minutes. What, what, do, what do you want to talk about? Well, I just, you know, I'm, I'm so thrilled that you're having me on because we, I'd also said to you, I said, hey, I really want to come on and talk about, because I post all the time my weight loss journey, yes. you know, as do you. I love seeing people's transformation and I love, you know, seeing just the different things that worked for people because I always tell people, you know, for me, it wasn't a diet. I, I was a master of dieting. Whether it was, you know, 360, whether it was, um, you know, South Beach, I had done everything. Um, and I always tell people, experiment. You know, maybe for some people that works. For me, it, diets did not work. I, I don't, you know, I don't believe in it. 
anymore. Mm-hmm. My own thing. But you have to try what works for you. Absolutely. So over the years, people have said to me, and I, I have a pop culture. Hey, Frage is a pop culture show. But people have said, will you and Robin Mize, my mindful eating therapist, do some sort of seminar? Will you guys talk about it? You know, because when I went to see Robin, I was in a very stressful job in radio, as as you know, but I was making a lot of money. So I had the disposable income to go and see Robin every single week for a long time, you know, which a lot of people don't have that luxury. And um, so... Robin and I have gotten together. We're doing a three-hour seminar February 24th at Arlington Arts Center in Arlington, Virginia. And it's all about mindful eating. I'm excited about this. When yes. You, when you like sent me the email and you're like, hey, I'm doing this. I was like, thank God somebody finally is. This is amazing. Like, <laughs> So here you are with your own story teaming up with the professional and you guys are just going to tag team the heck out of it. Yes. And help some people. Brilliant. Yes. And she, we're going to do a live session. So Robin actually has a woman that they've, they've met beforehand um, and she's going through her own body struggles um she was she lost a lot of weight found uh, this wonderful guy she thought they got married but after a year they got divorced and she's gained all the weight back and she's just really struggling with who she is you know her identity and and weight so robin's actually going to give people the chance to see a live session as though you were going to her privately which i think is so great because as you know everyone's trigger everyone's emotional addiction is different absolutely could be childhood trauma, could be work issues, could be a relationship. You know, there's so many things. of things. Combination. Um, you know, food addiction. It's, yep. it, so you get to see that. I'll go kind of more in depth about the step-by-step of how I did it because it was – I had to – you know, the first day I went in, Robin said to me, this isn't – this isn't a diet. You've got to be okay with yourself leaving here. What if you never lose one more pound? Mm. What if you're always 165 pounds? And, of course – when I went to her, in my mind, I was like, uh-uh, no, there's no way. Because I was always I was always striving to be that size two, that size four, to look like a man. I thought, no way. And she goes, if you want to master mindfulness and mindful eating, you have to be okay where you that if you never lose a pound. You have to celebrate that you're healthy, that you, you know, your family is healthy, that you have a great job, that you have the ability to be here. You have to come from a place of gratitude. And that took me like a year to learn because I really was like, I didn't know how to not be on a diet. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's so tough. people are kind of going get, to get into over the three hour session, um, you know, more of the details of, you know, what sort of prompts us to have food addiction, binge eat, emotional eat. There's also this dynamic within mindful eating called the permitter restrictor, which is I was a restrictor, always counting calories and then binging. You know, the permitter is like, let's party. You know, let's let's just eat. So you kind of get into identifying that. So it's February 24th, eventbrite.com. Uh, ticket price is $120. Um, and you really get access to Robin um, for three hours. And it's space is limited. So it's 50 people max. And we're oh. over halfway sold out. Nice, nice. Don't hit the table. The pro tip, we don't have shock absorbers oh, on right. these mics Oh, right. Oh, good. Oh, thank you for telling me. kind of a, a, a temp studio here. Um, but yeah, we're going to put all of that information up uh, on PCRM.org slash podcast on the show sheet here. Uh, that's at 1 o'clock, Arlington, Virginia, Arlington Arts Center, just outside beautiful Washington, D.C. If you're yes. anywhere in the metro area. The cool thing about this podcast, though, is that people listen from all over the world. I'm getting emails from the UK, from Australia. I've gotten some from South America, South Africa, you know, oh, and I it's bet. it's like the most gratifying thing, you know, like that's the beauty of the podcast. And so I'm thinking like, yes, okay, you're local, but maybe 
you get this one under your belt, you and Robin team back up and do an online seminar. We've already been asked, same thing, you know, with the, with the Hey Fresh podcast started in the D.C., Baltimore area. That's where people knew me. But now, you know, people have either left, they've spread the word. So I have a lot of people listening in L.A. and New York and other places. There you go, big time. And I mean, come on, big time. No. Um, but they've said, you know, will you do a webinar? Is there is there a way to access that? So I think Robin and I thought, let's do one, work the kinks out, really see what people, because as you know, what you think people are going to respond to and then what people live are really gravitating towards lots of times can be very different so we kind of wanted to work that out but I think you know more to come for sure because as you know everybody struggles with food oh for sure it's it's a major thing it's a major thing again that's that's the topic of the show this week um you you just astound me, and I honestly don't think either one of us saw was twelve thirteen years ago now when we were I mean, how up, many up years? the road that we would be sitting here right now doing this. You having conquered yours, me having conquered mine, you know, and and still talking about it. And it's something that so awesome. you're doing the seminar, I'm doing the show. It's something that we still work at every single day, but it's also at this point a labor of love. You take pride. And what you do, just as I do in what I do here. And I love that about you. And and like you will put that message out there and you don't care. I don't care. I love it. Because I want, you know, so many men and women listening. And, and I, what I think is so awesome about you is so many men. And there are actually a couple of men who have signed up for this mindful eating seminar. Good for them. So many men deal with it. But, you know, with men, I think you guys have even more pressure to come out. And if you're overweight, be like, oh, I don't care. You know, you, you guys have this bravado, I think, that you have to keep up. And I... I can't even begin to tell you, you know, mindful eating changed everything for me. It Mm. changed confidence in my career. It gave me, as you said at the start of this, it really gave me the confidence to step out on my own and go, you know what? I did something when I mastered my food addiction. I was like, if I can do this, I can do anything. Because when I tell you for 17 years, I woke up and every day all I thought about was how fat I thought I was, how thin or trying to stay how thin I thought I was or calories in or how I was going to get to an hour workout class or if I'd eaten one cupcake, I'd blown it. Once I had that freedom to never think about that anymore, I was like, I can do anything. And now I want people to know you're more than a body you know you're yeah. more than your weight and even if you're not health wise where you want to be start living your life with excitement and gusto and you know and what breaks my heart is over the years a lot of women have said look I won't even take pictures with my kids and put them on Facebook mm. because of how I look and that breaks my heart as someone who lost my dad when I was like 14 going on 15 years old you know we don't have a lot of photos and you think I never cared what he looked like, you know? So for me, it's so important that I put this out there because I don't want one person to not, you know, do what they're meant to do and fulfill their dream and destiny because of what they look like. I love it. I can't think of a better way to end this segment. That is phenomenal. (laughs) That is uplifting at its finest right there, Sarah Frazier. So the event is, again, Sunday, February 24th, 1 o'clock p.m. Tickets at eventbrite.com. And you want to check out the podcast. That's Hey Frage. Yes, it's on Spotify. It's on iTunes. You can follow me at Hey Frage, H-E-Y-F-R-A-S-E, on Instagram, YouTube. We do the show live. And 
it is amazing. You know, it's so cool. I remember walking into work with you, you know, when, when Chuck Carroll was, you know, 300 and something pounds and you were just this sweetheart and we were both internally struggling with so much. And it, it's wild to just see how we've both grown and changed. It's really cool. Who knew? Who, Who, knew? Knew? Who, knew? Who knew? Imagine if we were doing a show together then, like as co-hosts and like both of us lose all of that weight together and like... We would be big time international. Well, actually, time. I'm glad it happened this way because, you know, in radio, like everyone hates each other. All their co-hosts hate each other by the time they that leave. That was just the so, building. <laughs> that was just that building. Oh, was it was it such a toxic environment. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> okay, and that's a whole other show. But that was that building ratcheted. I, I, I'm just okay, saying. Okay. I'm just saying. We'll talk about that on your show. All right. No, oh, please. I'm ready to dish. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Sarah Frazier, again, Sunday, February 24th. Don't you dare miss it. This is the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Such a fun podcast. Such a fun podcast. She's awesome, isn't she? It's so funny. Somebody tweeted me recently that my old body at 420 pounds just, it doesn't seem to fit my personality. And they're absolutely right. I cannot argue with that. But what they missed the point on was that my personality also completely changed after I lost 275 pounds. Sarah knows both personalities, okay? She knows Chuck version 1.0 and Chuck 2.0, and that's why I love talking with her, because she can appreciate the transformation, not just from knowing both sides of me, but because she's done it too, She's done it, too. She's gone through it, and she has gained a ton of confidence from it. And now look at her putting on this wonderful seminar, doing this great podcast. It's incredible. And I, I think that the, the big thing there is that I don't feel like I have to put on a mask anymore. When I was 420 pounds. I felt like I needed to. But I don't have to be this larger-than-life wannabe shock jock with a potty mouth who will do anything for attention. More importantly, do anything to gain acceptance. Heck, you know, I was so desperate to fit in that I once put on a coconut bra and a grass skirt and I did the polar plunge in the Potomac River just outside of Washington, D.C. Now, this was late January, probably. 10, 11, 12 years ago now, it was so cold that day. It was so frigidly cold that day that they actually had to chip ice off the top of the river just so we could dive into the water. And let me tell you, my 400-pound frame awfully blew that day. I'm telling you, I looked like a giant blueberry or the world's largest smurf. That was me. But those are the lengths that I would go to just to get acceptance when I was so heavy. I did not want to be that pariah. I wanted to be a friend. I wanted to fit in. And doing stupid shenanigans like that, putting on that larger-than-life personality, it was exhausting. But that is what I thought it took. Turns out that wasn't the case. Before we wrap up, as a reminder, this episode is brought to you by Treeline Tree Nut Cheese, available at Whole Foods, Kroger, and fine stores nationwide. Visit treelinecheese.com to learn more.
And if you haven't done so, please take a moment to subscribe to the show, whether it be on Apple Podcast or on Spotify or on Stitcher. It really matters not where you get your podcast from because we are available there. All we ask is that you subscribe and leave a five-star rating and a nice comment if you would be so kind. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll, reminding you that dreams can come true. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing is impossible. Food addiction does not have to run your life. You can beat it, you can be healthy, and you can live a long life, my friend, a long life. Thank you so very much for listening. Keep it plant-based.